first reading is from 2 Corinthians 6, 1 to 13, which is page 1162 in the Church Bibles. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvations. Day of salvation, Paul's hardships. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distress, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. In purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonour, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying, and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you, We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel reading is taken from Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to the end, and this can be found on page 1006 in the Church Bibles. Mark 4:35 Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark Glory to you O Lord That day when evening came he said to his disciples Let us go over to the other side Leaving the crowd behind they took him along just as he was in the boat There were also other boats with him A furious squall came up And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please do have a seat. 
Just before I start, I'll pray. Father, open our hearts to you so that we can be changed by the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to start with a short video. Apparently a woman rang the BBC and said she heard that there was a hurricane on the way. Well, if you're watching, don't worry, there isn't. But having said that, actually, the weather will become very windy. But most of the strong winds, incidentally, will be down over Spain and uh, across into France. I'm sure some of you remember that, a defining moment in Michael Fish's career. He was to regret that for the rest of his life, I think. (laughs) Um, I was out in that storm, in that hurricane. We'd been out, a friend friend and I had been out to visit some other friends, and I had decided that I would be driving, so my friend Julia had... uh, imbibed quite a bit, we have to say. And we were driving home, and it was getting worse and worse. And at one point, we were on a dual carriageway, and I, I did not move the, the steering wheel, and we just swung across the entire dual carriageway onto oncoming traffic. Um, and it was quite scary. My friend Julia, having had an awful lot of wine and a fair amount of gin, was giggling and thought it was really quite exciting and said to me, Carol, shall I take over the driving? Well, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> but um, I can certainly understand how it felt to be in a storm. And perhaps Michael Fish would have been better off if he too had listened to that lady who had rung in and said there's a hurricane on the way. And sometimes maybe we need to listen to the still, small voices that are telling us something. In the passage we had read today from Mark's Gospel, the the quieter voices are in the questions But sometimes it can be important to listen to those questions and dwell on them, let them seep into us, rather than immediately looking for answers. This is the um, Sea of Galilee. I'm sure some of you have been there. It's absolutely beautiful. I have swum in that sea. I remember it well. It was fantastic. But it is surrounded by mountains and it has its own weather system and so the rest of Israel and the rest of the sea can be absolutely calm and without warning and very very quickly um, the the sea can turn into really high waves very very dangerous with very strong winds we didn't when we swam we didn't go out very far I have to tell you so the passage I'm I'm trying out some new technology. Oh, it works. (laughs) We're in Mark, as you can tell. And the passage is one of the most dramatic and loved passages in the New Testament. And I suspect that Jesus and his disciples were tired. They'd had a lot of people around them. They probably just wanted to go away and to be quiet. It's evening... And Jesus decides to curl up in the boat, his head on a cushion. I love that detail. Remember the cushion. We're coming back to that. So Jesus is sleeping soundly as, as his disciples steer the vessel across to the other side. So here's the first question. Why? Why were they going across to the other side of the lake? 
Well, the easy answer, of course, is because they wanted to get away from the crowds, they were tired. It's not unreasonable, is it? But with Jesus, it seems to me that absolutely nothing is ever that simple. There's lots of getting in boats and lots of traveling with Jesus and and with the disciples. Perhaps sometimes Jesus needs to take us away from the things that crowd in our lives so that we can spend time with him and listen to what it is he has to say. There's so many distractions, books, television, people, family, computer games, washing, ironing, cooking, bills that need to be paid. Perhaps sometimes Jesus needs us to come a little bit out of our comfort zone, to take some time to be still and to dwell with him. Perhaps he has something he wants to talk to us about. Something to show us that can't be done with the busyness that we surround ourselves with every single day. And perhaps the challenge for us is to make that space and to make that time for him. So all at once the wings pick up, the waves grow huge and the boat threatens to capsize. These disciples were experienced fishermen, but they recognized quickly that very soon the boat was going to be overcome. The storm was much too powerful for them. In desperation, they roused the still sleeping Jesus, not gently, not quietly, not in a very British way, but with a question so full of bewilderment and accusation and panic You can feel the urgency and the bite across the centuries. Teacher, don't you care that we are drowning? To me, this echoes all the way back to those children of Israel. They'd come out of Egypt. They were being chased by the Egyptian army on one side, the Red Sea on the other. They turn around in bewilderment and fear and start saying, why are we here? Is God going to do something? Where is God? Has he forgotten us? Have we come this far only to drown? I know this question. I have felt the urgency and the need when it feels like everything you are holding on to is disintegrating. Many Christians across the world and across the ages must have cried out help in the midst of life's life's catastrophic storms and experienced what feels like a sleeping Jesus. Christians who are persecuted, members of that church in Charleston in America, both black and white, must wonder if Jesus cares. Intellectually, I know the answer to this. It's always yes. Yes, of course Jesus cares when we're drowning. But as we all know, the greatest distance on earth is the distance between our heads and our hearts. To me, the question is a dynamic one. I have to keep living it, keep asking it, keep facing it. It's not an answer we can put neatly away, filed under okay, I've got that, and forget about it. We have to hold it in our prayers before us each day. 
To me, the yes of God remains a promise to grow into, as a toddler needs constant repetition for their reassurance. I need to keep asking. This is part of the answer of Paul's question. If you remember in our Corinthians passage, his challenge was, are your hearts wide open? Are our hearts open wide enough for us to be honest about our questioning and our fear and our doubts? And yes, in the moment when the disciples thought they were drowning, like us, their hearts were wide open. But it's so easy, isn't it? In the cool light of day, when the storm has passed, and we've once again found our equilibrium to close our hearts, both to each other and to God. Once again, we can be self-sufficient, and once again, we can tell the world that all is well and prevent the Holy Spirit ministering to our deepest needs. That moment of vulnerability, when the reality of our pain hits us, is often our time of most openness and honesty with the Holy Spirit. For me, the yes of God remains a promise to grow into daily. So then Jesus wakes up. He rebukes the wind and stills the sea. And in the deep calm after the storm, he turns to face his bewildered friends and asks, Why are you afraid? Is he kidding? They have just been in a storm. When I was very little, and I think, I'm not sure, I think I must have been about to, it's one of my earliest memories, my, we'd been, I'd been with my mother to pick up my older siblings from school and we'd gone to the pool. It was a hot, hot summer's day. And I was standing by the deep end, absolutely fascinated by the, the sun on the water and all the glinting, completely oblivious to the fact that my older brother and my older sister were playing right behind me. They too, in the excitement of their play, were completely oblivious to their fact that their little sister, who was incapable of swimming, was standing right by the edge of the deep end. And you know what's going to happen, don't you? My brother pushed my sister. She was fine. I went plonk straight into the deep end. I nearly drowned. And I can remember that feeling of panic. It is one of my earliest memories of absolute panic that I couldn't take a breath I was trying and I looked up and I could see lots of people trying to fish me out because I'd gone quite deep and they were all trying to fish me out they did clearly because I'm here but (laughs) but I can so understand the disciples fear there are many hundred African migrants many of them fleeing violence persecution and grinding, relentless poverty, and they have drowned in the Mediterranean Sea. And if we extend the meaning of drowning to include all the ways in which we find ourselves in over our heads, when we're overpowered, overwhelmed, and terrified, then Jesus' question could seem ludicrous. Why are we afraid in the midst of earthquake, tsunamis, wars, Droughts, terrorist attacks, mass shootings, mass graves, large-scale starvation and catastrophic disease. 
Why are we afraid when we face broken marriages, depressed children, unfriendly neighbours, horrible jobs, or financial insecurity? Because we're human, maybe? Because fear is a reasonable response? Why do we fear? The question is an invitation to be honest with God and with ourselves. Why am I afraid? Perhaps because I haven't made my peace with God or with death, mine or anyone else's. Because I fear pain, loneliness, rejection. Yes, all of these. I'm afraid because Jesus apparently meant it when he said, Take up your cross and follow me, and I'm not sure I'm ready. This is the furnace in which faith becomes real. And if you're doubting Jesus' ability to love and care for you and the truth of his word, I was reading a little bit in Ezra this week, and it was absolutely brilliant. It's uh, talking about when the Jews are returned after the exile to Jerusalem and they are building a temple under God's instruction. And uh, the prophet says, if anyone alters this edict, i.e. alters the word of God, a beam shall be pulled out of the house of the perpetrator who then shall be impaled on it. The house shall be made a dunghill. God's word stands He means it when he says he loves us. We can depend on what God says. He will not abandon us to fear simply because he says he won't. And we can say with the psalmist, my soul clings to you. Your right hand shall hold me fast. So we go on to the next question, a little easier, maybe. Do you still have no faith? Well, sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. One of the odd things about this story is that Mark surrounds it with a perplexing set of contrasts. In in the stories before the storm, it's all about the mustard seed and the sower and the little vulnerable bits. Jesus is describing the kingdom of God as small secretive, quiet. It's like a sower who's scattering his seeds, seeds so vulnerable that they could be snatched away by birds or choked by weeds. But in the chapters that follow, Jesus talks about a kingdom of dramatic supernatural power. He casts out demons, raises a little girl from the dead, heals a hemorrhaging woman, feeds 5,000 people with a few hands of handfuls of bread and fish, and he walks on water. To have faith is to be able to hold these two pictures of the kingdom in tension and to allow God to reveal himself in both. Yes, sometimes Jesus demonstrates his power in miraculous, technicolor ways, when we're not wrong to ask and hope for such things. At other times, though, he wants us to trust that his incarnation, his quiet, abiding presence is in our lives, and it's enough. Sometimes, Jesus' power is paradoxical. It comes to us in seeming weakness, in quiet whispers, 
and tiny gestures. It's hidden, not absent, it's hidden. The challenge is for us to wait and to listen. So the last question in the story returns to the disciples. After Jesus calms the storm, Mark writes, the disciples were afraid. It's no longer the elements terrifying them, it's Jesus. Who is this man? They tell, they ask each other and us in absolute awe. Even the wind and the waves obey him. I hope I'll always find the courage to ask this question. That is, to allow Jesus to make himself amazing and strange to me. Strange, new, unnerving and unpredictable, other. Jesus isn't tame or safe. God judges sin and transforms sinners in a way that often feels as if it's ripping apart our deepest selves. God is merciful and full of grace, but his mercy and grace have sharp edges. To engage with Jesus with honesty and with openness is to find him to be ever-present, ever-watching, with ruthless, relentless transforming grace. The disciples prior to this storm thought they'd understood Jesus. They thought they'd got him boxed, but they hadn't. He was wilder, more powerful, less predictable, and more mysterious than they had yet imagined. Remember the cushion when Jesus sleeps on the cushion. Now, I'm no biblical scholar. I don't do Greek. That's too many, too many hyphens and things. But I wonder if we don't have a huge clue in this, in this cushion. The disciples were wondering who Jesus was, and yet there he was in a fisherman's boat with his head on a cushion. It's very human. Who of us in a train station or an airport haven't rolled up a, a cardigan or a coat or a bag and put it as a cushion? and had tried to grab some sleep. And yet, this cushion, is it a reference to Christ's kingship? Who else would we find resting on a cushion in a storm but a king? If we think we have got Jesus pegged, then it's time to get to know him again. It's time to ask the questions again, to to travel out with Jesus and to wait. Teacher, don't you care that we're drowning? Why are you afraid? Who is this man? When you hear the question that is your question, you've begun to hear the Holy Spirit. When you hear the question that is your question, press in close, take time and listen. God is near. These questions give Jesus an opportunity, sorry, give us an opportunity to move closer to Jesus, to open ourselves up for a while and invite the Holy Spirit to change us, to stem our fear. And maybe we can go to a place where we can lay down and sleep with Jesus a while while the storm is happening, 
because we know he loves us and cares for us. I want to finish with another video clip. It's from Finding Nemo, which is a film I absolutely love. Listen to what the father is doing to find his son. Jesus, son of God, there at creation, who died for you and me, takes as much trouble to find us and to love us. Our questions will always lead back to him because he is God. There is safety in traveling with him because he came looking for us first. Oh, Nigel, you just missed an extraction. Oh, has he loosened the periodontal ligament of the elevator yet? Uh, what am I talking about? Nemo, where's Nemo? I've got to speak with him. What? What is it? Your dad's been fighting the entire ocean looking for you. My father? Really? Really? Oh, yeah. He's traveled hundreds of miles. He's been battling sharks and jellyfish, sharks? all sorts of... That can't be him. Are you sure? What was his name? Well, it's some sort of sport fish or something. Tuna? Uh, trout? Marlin? That's it. Marlin, the little clownfish from the reef. It's my dad! He took on a shark! I heard he took on three. Three? Three? Three sharks? There's gonna be 4,800 teeth. You see, kid, after you were taken by Diver Dan over there, your dad followed the boat you were on like a maniac. Really? He's swimming, he's swimming, he's giving it all this gobble, and then three gigantic sharks capture him. He blows him up, and then dives down to his feet, and he gets chased by a monster with huge teeth. He ties the steam to the Right now, to Sydney. Wow. Oh, what a good day. <laughs> he was looking for you after all, shark mate. I suggest this week we take some time away from all the distractions to spend time with Jesus, asking the questions, being open and honest, and finding where the Holy Spirit is. Our next song, Faithful One, is a good place to start as we call out to God knowing he will always answer us.